Hey, everybody. My name is Brian Turney. I'm one of the elders here at the summit. Um, on a Sunday, typically, you can find me back in the sound booth trying to make sure everything runs smoothly. But as we continue our survival guide series in Ephesians chapter 6, um, Brian Barley has asked me to kind of come down from above and share a word with you all. So that's what I'm about to do. Um, I'll be honest, I have never done this before, but I've been working really hard and practicing my Brian Barley hand gestures, and um, I'm wearing plaid, so I think I'm good to go. Um, All right, so on top of that, the first part of Ephesians 6 is about parenting, and if you know me and my wife, Melissa, we are parents, and so... Um, We've got a son named Charlie, who's about 16 months old, um, as well as a baby girl who's on the way, due in January. Cue the baby pictures on the screen. There he is. Yeah, there he is. My kid's so talented, he uses two spoons instead of one. Um, Yeah, so basically, I figured if this bombs, um, you guys could walk away saying, well, he wasn't very good, but um, at least we saw some cute baby pictures. So, there you go. Um, but with Charlie being 16 months old, that means I've been a dad for 16 months. Uh, crazy how that works. But um, there's a book called Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. And in it, he talks about the 10,000-hour rule, basically saying in order to be successful, in order to uh, be an expert at whatever you're trying to do, whether it's chess or calculus or, or basketball or whatever, you have, to do, you have to put in at least 10,000 hours of work or 10,000 hours of practice to become that expert. So when you take the 16 months that I've been a dad and and kind of flip the equation into hours, it comes to about 11,500, which means that I'm basically a parenting expert. And so um, we'll change that. So you're welcome. Um, So I hope you're excited. Um, (laughs) But understand I'm totally kidding. I'm pretty sure parents don't accidentally like toss their kid into a moving ceiling fan or... Um, you know, wipe their kid's bottom and then go to wipe something off their face and forget they use the same wipe and smear some poop on his face. It happens. But um, (laughs) basically all that to say, when you stop to think about it, the impact that family has on all of us, the the emotions that it conjures up or the memories that that come flooding back to us, or when you think about the the role of parents in producing... um, self-sufficient and like socially aware and functioning human beings, the fact that there's so little preparation that we get ahead of time to do that is, is kind of alarming, especially when you think about what it takes to like adopt a dog. You know, you, you go through like background checks and home studies and you sign your life away and all this kind of stuff just to adopt a dog. But when it comes to raising a kid, you know, there's no test you have to take or class that's mandatory or certification you get. And basically anyone can kind of just go for it without any you know, forward thinking or intentionality. It's a little crazy, right? And um, you know, we, we've all been impacted by our parents, whether they were good, bad, or non-existent, through the things they, they did or didn't do or the things they said or didn't say. And um, our, our parents have deeply ingrained in us certain characteristics certain habits or mannerisms, certain perceptions that we, that we come to the world with. And I think we only really begin to grasp that as we grow and, and become adults and can look back and see the impact that our parents had on us and still have on us today. We see this in how we deal with conflict or 
how we communicate with others, how we go about our jobs, um, the things that we prioritize, and that's just in everyday life. And now let's think about what that looks like when you're raising your own kids someday. If you're not already a parent, statistics say that the majority of the people in this room will be at some point, and you'll have a kid of your own to raise. And so when it's your turn, and I know this is scary for some of you to think about, but stay with me. When it's your turn, you're the one that's just come home from the hospital, and you you walk through the door, you've got the baby in your arm, you've got a diaper bag and a baby carrier, mom's got some flowers and and some balloons and um, you know, you take a couple pictures, Instagram a couple, cutest baby ever, OMG. When you do all that and it kind of wears off, baby's freaking out, you're looking at your spouse and saying, okay, what do we do now? And so when you're going, where are you going to turn? That's, that's what we have to figure out. Do you just kind of do what your parents did in raising you and, and do you choose yours or your spouse's? Or... Do you just kind of rebel and do the opposite of whatever they did? Or maybe you turn to kind of books and blogs for the, the latest and greatest child-rearing fads. You know, the ones that kind of flip-flop every couple of years. Babies should sleep on their stomach. No, that's kind of dangerous. Babies should sleep on their back. Well, maybe babies should co-sleep with you to help them adapt to life outside the womb a little better. Well, you don't want to become too attached, but... You know, we could stick a pacifier in their mouth. No, don't do that because you could jack up their teeth and ruin their speech development. It's crazy. And that you can never keep up with it all. But there are all these voices. Your parents, your peers, the books you read, what you see on TV, whether verbalized or not, all trying to tell you how your family should be and how you should raise your kids. And the question is, who are you going to listen to? Thankfully, there's one true voice that we can turn our ears to. And that's the creator of family, our heavenly father. And as we turn to Ephesians 6 tonight, we will see that family was created for something good, for something beautiful. And it was never meant to be the, the painful, abusive, clingy, depressing, soul-crushing, whatever term comes to mind when you think about family. It was never meant to be that. Sin has ravaged the concept of family. But the gospel brings healing and it brings restoration. And so let's turn to the scripture tonight for guidance to see how that happens. Before we go any further, though, I do need to make a quick disclaimer. So in Ephesians 6, Paul talks about the relationship between parents and children. He also talks about masters and slaves. And I've been asked to talk about parenting. And so we're not going to really talk on the slavery thing, but I at least need to acknowledge it because um, passages like these have been used to justify some really awful things in the history of the church. And um, what's important to realize here is the context and the purpose behind Paul's writing. Paul, as well as what Jesus' ministry on earth was about, was not about overthrowing like uh, a political institution, but about seeing people's hearts change, about seeing revolution happen from the inside out. And so just because Paul writes about it doesn't mean he's condoning this. And so if you have any questions about that, talk to me, talk to any of our other pastors. We'd be happy to answer any questions about that aspect of this passage. Um, I'd also recommend Mark Driscoll's book, Who Do You Think You Are? There's a, there's a really great uh, chapter specifically on this passage. So there you go. Okay, so parenting. And we're going to talk about our past first. So if you turn to Ephesians 6, verse 1 through 3 with me, Paul's going to be addressing children first. And while most of us are kind of past this stage in our lives, Um, I think that we can pull out some really key 
um, things to understand about how we've been raised and our past and how it's still shaping who we are today. So turn with me to Ephesians 6, verse 1 through 3. It says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Okay. Um, So the Apostle Paul starts with the kids first. And if you're a kid in the room tonight, this is pretty straightforward. Uh, Basically saying, obey and honor your parents because this is right, and this is right because God commanded it to be so. Paul takes it old school in verses 2 and 3, and he references the Ten Commandments here. And uh, it says that it may go well with you, and you may live long in the land. Typically, when the Old Testament mentions the land, it's referring first to the promised land in the Old Testament. But beyond that, it also mentions, it's also referring to heaven and the promised land that's been promised to us through salvation by God. And so, kids, what you can take away from this is that obeying and honoring your parents is a mark of someone who follows Jesus. If you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and if you want to follow him, obeying and honoring the people that God has blessed you with as your parents is a really great place to start. You can, uh, you can also think of it this way, even more practically, like live long in the land and don't get your butt thrown out on the street because you drive your parents crazy, okay? And so, um, so honor and obey them so you can live long in your house and not have to worry about bills, jobs, and other like adult responsibilities. So, so kids, do that. Um, for the adults in the room, we were all children at one point. But now that you're grown, your relationship to your parents should look a little different. And if it doesn't, we can talk later about that after the service. But we believe, um, yeah. And so honor and obedience might not look the same um, when you have your own family and you're a grown man or woman. But where I think this is really helpful, again, is to understand where we've come from so that we can better, have a better understanding of who we are today and where we're going in the future. So there are four things that I think we have to understand when it comes to family and past. The first is that we are sinful. Isn't it interesting that in, uh, in the first couple of verses, Paul's not telling kids to, uh, you know, relax, let your hair down, you know, don't be so uptight, live a little, go crazy once in a while. That stuff comes pretty naturally. We have a natural tendency to be disobedient, a natural tendency to, to, to sin. And that's because we believe that since the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God by believing that their way was better than God's way, sin entered the world. And we are all corrupted by that sin. And rather than pursuing love and unity and peace, we selfishly seek our own gain, our own pleasure, our own desires. And if you're objecting to what I'm saying right now, then chances are you don't have kids. Amen, parents, is that, am I right? And uh, babies are the most, one of the most tangible ways that we see humanity's depravity. And because from a young age, they're all about themselves. They'll do whatever they want with little regard for anyone else. They just go for it, and they don't care. Melissa and I saw this pretty clearly um, about nine months in with Charlie. Uh, he had just kind of started to crawl and explore, which is awesome, except when he gets into things that could be harmful or dangerous or whatever. 
And, um, you know, things like eating our dog's food or playing in the, the toilet water. These are things that aren't, aren't good for him to do. And we, we would tell him that. And so this is a picture of Charlie um, disobeying me. Uh, I've told him like 20 times at this point, stay away from the dog food. But he was pretty intent on taking it, dipping it in the water, and then sticking it in his mouth. Um, apparently it goes down a little smoother when it's moist. I don't know. But... Uh, so, but this is just an example. It's funny now, and you can take that off the screen. It's distracting, but uh, it's funny now. Um, but what we see is that in each of us, there's this sin, and that same sinfulness that saw Adam and Eve say that they were, their way was better than God's. It's alive and well in my son. It's alive and well in us, in me, in you. And it's only manifests itself in worse and more dangerous and destructive ways as we grow older. The second thing we have to understand is that we are given an example. The beautiful thing about family is that also from a young age, we're given an example of the gospel through marriage. Marriage is one of the clearest pictures we have of Christ's love for us. And it's no coincidence that if we look at the way Ephesians is laid out, Paul writes about marriage in chapter 5 before he addresses parents and children in chapter 6. And that's because marriage is the foundation upon which a healthy family is built. And Christ is the foundation upon which a healthy marriage is built. The sacrificial, unconditional love between a husband and wife echoes Christ to their kids. I'm not sure where this quote comes from. I moved here from North Carolina, and I think it's really popular in the Bible. Well, basically, people say, the best thing a man can do for his kids is love his wife well. And I would hear that and uh, kind of inwardly scoff and roll my eyes. But now that I'm on the other side of things, I have a kid of my own, and um, I've, I've kind of returned to that and kind of thought through it, and I think that principle has a lot of merit. Um, because when I think about it, I could teach my son Charlie every ounce of theology I know. I could have him memorize the Bible from, from front cover to back cover, Genesis to Revelation. But unless I tangibly model Christ's love for him, through the way that I, I, I selflessly lay down my interests for the sake of my family, the way that I love my wife, Melissa, unless I do these things and put on display the love, of, the love that Christ has for his church through marriage, then everything I say I believe actually means nothing. And some of you have experienced this. Rather than your parents' marriage being a shining example of gospel-centered love, it's more of a case study in what not to do. And it's deeply impacted the way you view intimacy and relationships and even your view of God himself. But at its best, and in the way God intended, marriage is like a constellation in the night sky. In a dark world where love and marriage and truth is easily twisted, a gospel-centered marriage can be a beacon that a kid can look to as they navigate life's choppy waters to help find their way into their father's loving arms. The third thing is that we are able to love. So from the beginning, we are jacked up sinners, but through the grace of God and the gift of marriage, we are granted an example of gospel love. And the next, we are able to love when we are loved ourselves. In verses 1 and 2, Paul instructs children to obey and honor their parents in response to a promise. That promise, again, coming from the commandments laid out in Exodus, is the blessing of living long in the land. Throughout Scripture, God's promises do not come as a result 
of his people's goodness or his people's faithfulness, but they come as a result of God's goodness, of God's faithfulness. God delivers his people from slavery in Egypt and into the promised land because they are his people. He loves them in spite of their grumbling, in spite of their disobedience, in spite of their lack of faith. And the honor and obedience they give back to God is only in response to the love he first showed them. The same is so true for parents and children. Let's be honest. As kids, there's not a whole lot of return on the investment our, our parents put into us, especially when we're infants. I mean, some of you were, were cute, maybe. But all the lack of sleep that our parents got, the incessant crying and pooping and eating and the stress and costs associated with raising a kid, that in and of itself does not inspire a whole lot of blessing in living long in the land. A parent's love for their child is not in response to that child's performance, but rather the love stems from the fact that that child is theirs. The love existed before that child could even begin to reciprocate the love. And so as we grew, whatever honor and obedience we had for our parents grew out of a response that we had to seeing how our parents were there for us, how they cared for us, how they would provide and never abandon us. And fourth and finally, we are shaped. And so maybe this has been your experience, that your parents' marriage was a clear example of Christ-centered love, and that despite your sinfulness, your parents loved you deeply, and um, you obeyed and honored them growing up. And if so, praise the Lord, because that's amazing. But in reality, the sad truth is that many more of you have not experienced this. And maybe you grew up in a broken home where marriage was not modeled well for you. Or the abusive bitterness between your parents jaded your understanding of intimacy and relationships. Or maybe your parents' marriage was fine. But the way they parented you just entitled and enabled you, ignoring your sinfulness and puffing you up to make you think you were something you were not. Or maybe they drilled you with rules and discipline, lacking any compassion or tenderness, instilling in you a need to perform and to work to earn their favor. Whatever it is, and however you were raised, you carry with you remnants of your past. What you have to realize is that your parents were the first and most powerful influence in shaping how you interpret life and love today. And if we look back at those things, that we were born sinful, that we were given an example and that we love because we were loved and that those things ultimately shape our experience today, we also have to understand that our journey as a child mimics the journey we take in our spiritual life as well. That we were born with a selfish, sinful heart, that God became man in the person of Jesus Christ and he gave us an example of the life that we should live but could never get there. And that ultimately Jesus loved us so much that he sacrificed himself on the cross dying the death that we deserve because of that sinfulness. And we honor and obey him only when we recognize the love that he first showed us. And that everything about us is then changed by the truth and the promise of the gospel. And because these two journeys are so so closely tied, your family life and your spiritual life, what we have to come to terms with is that how we were parented fundamentally shapes how we view God today. 
Your view of the Heavenly Father has been modeled to you by your earthly parents. What you believe about who God is, what He's like, and how He feels about you is so often inextricably tied in some way to how your parents related to you. And so what perceptions of God do you come to the table with? Good and gracious, domineering and tyrannical, apathetic and distant, maybe some kind of genie that just kind of gives you whatever you want with little regard for your heart or your holiness. The first thing you need to do is simply recognize this. Again, whether good or bad or non-existent, our parents have had a profound impact on who we are today and especially in our view of God. So I would encourage you to take some time to, to examine your life and understand that. It's all too easy to just kind of run from the pain of our past without ever looking back to see how it's affecting us still today. Most likely even thinking about your family and your parents um, can be a painful exercise. But for some of you, it isn't. For some of you, your, your parents have been a tremendous blessing in your life and has, have helped propel you towards a relationship with Jesus. Praise the Lord. Rejoice in that. Thank God and thank your parents for that. However, for most of you, your parents have not been that. Parents and family are powerful forces in our lives. But don't make the mistake in thinking that they are more powerful than the life-changing power of the gospel. If you've decided to follow Jesus, you've been forgiven and accepted into God's family. And as a result, you have the power to forgive as well. Sure, there's going to be habits, perceptions, manners, and memories that continue to rear their head. But understand that you are empowered by the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. You've been saved out of your circumstances, and I would challenge you to forgive the wrongs your parents have committed against you. Release the anger. Release the bitterness. Love them with the same love that Christ has extended to you. Take hope that through Jesus you can be freed from the ghosts of your past. Through the gospel you're made new and the sins of your parents are left void of power in light of the cross. And finally, no matter your family's situation, Understand that you've been saved into a new family, the church family. Your heavenly Father loves you deeply, and he's surrounded you with brothers and sisters in Christ that care for you, are there to support you, and are seeking the same thing, trying to figure out how to follow Jesus in their lives as well. Embrace and commit to this family. Whether it's here at the summit or elsewhere, the Christian life is not meant to be lived alone. Okay, so we've talked about our past, and now we'll shift to our parenting. And so in verse 4, we're going to look back at the text and see what Paul has to say about our parenting and how our past often shapes how we go about our parenting. Ephesians 6, 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So when we see the impact that parents have on all of us, it be, becomes so clear as to why we see issues repeating themselves generation after generation after generation. When it comes time for our turn, the way we were parented is oftentimes going to be the, the default way that we parent when it's ourselves. Even in Scripture, when you look back at family lines like um, Abraham fathering Isaac and Isaac fathering Jacob and Jacob fathering his children, 
we, get, we see patterns of lies and deceitfulness replicating themselves over and over and over again. And so for your family, maybe it's emotional distance or anger or substance abuse or depression, whatever it is. A lot of times you can trace the things you struggle with in your life to your parents, back to your grandparents, and so on. The beautiful news, though, is that through the gospel, the cycle can be broken, a new legacy established, the story rewritten. And we're going to take a look at the responsibility of parents in allowing that to happen. So if we look at the end of verse 4, we see that children are to be brought up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Of the Lord. Our natural tendency there is to place our own name in place of the Lord. And so um, in my mind, it should read the um, instruction and discipline of Brian. And that's because we let um, our own experiences, our own emotions, our own realities shape the truth rather than relying on what the truth really is. I want to discipline my kid because he disobeyed me or I want to discipline her because she embarrassed me. Or I want to spoil my kid because I wasn't spoiled as a kid and I want to show my love through what I can give to him. But what Paul is writing and what God is saying is that we have a higher calling than that. Rather than rely on our own truth, which is shaped by our parents, by our emotions, by the people around us, by the trendiest mom blogs, we parent with a purpose in light of the truth of the gospel. And that purpose is to shepherd and disciple our children toward a relationship with Jesus, knowing that there is no greater thing that we could ever do for them. If you're here and aren't a follower of Jesus, then that might sound crazy. If you are here and you're a parent and you claim Christ, then that sounds good. But if we're really honest with ourselves, how often is that really true? How often can we really say that that shepherding them towards Jesus is a priority. My son, uh, this is a struggle for me. My son, um, like I said, he's 16 months old, several years away from going to school. And yet I have panic attacks when I think about um, him going to school. Which, which school do we send him to? Public, private, homeschool? They all have their pros and cons. I think back to the trauma I experienced as like a shy, pudgy little guy and how awful that was for me. I don't want it to be the same for him. And that's what my mind gets wrapped up in. Or Melissa and I will debate about what sports should Charlie play. Maybe it's baseball. Well, baseball's kind of boring. I don't want to have to sit through those games. Or uh, maybe hockey. Well, hockey's super expensive. We can't afford that. Or, well, maybe, but what about football? That's fun, but he also runs the risk of brain damage. So maybe that's not such a good choice. And so we get caught up in these things. And that's fine. We all have these hopes and dreams for our kids. And I mean everyone, whether you're single, whether you are dating, whether you are married without kids, married with kids, you have all thought about this. You've thought about the legacy that you want to leave behind in your kids, or you've thought about the mom or dad that you want to be someday based on how your parents were or what you've seen before. And we have these hopes and dreams, but how often do those hopes and dreams center on our ultimate hope? And let's be clear, these these things aren't bad things to think about, what sports or what school. They're not bad. But we often settle for these temporary goals. When if we are a follower of Christ, then a child who relentlessly pursues Jesus and follows him to the ends of the earth, that should be our greatest joy. That should be our greatest dream, our, our greatest hope for our child. 
Nothing else that we can dream up for our kids offers the everlasting hope, freedom, joy, or purpose found in Christ. Nothing else. And so when you believe that, then your relationship with Jesus, your relationship with God ought to totally transform the way that we parent our children. And so here, are, are, we'll just go over a few ways of that, how that actually happens. The first is that we disciple for a purpose. I'm not going to get into how that actually happens. I'll let the parents kind of pray over that and think through that and decide how they want to discipline their kid. But what I want to talk about is the purpose and the heart behind it. In Ephesians 6, Paul writes that our discipline should be of the Lord. Kids are crazy. And believe me, you're going to have to discipline them at some point, okay? If you really love them, you will. And uh, when it comes time, if our parenting is not rooted in Christ, if it's not defined by God, then discipline easily reverts to revenge, to releasing anger, to taking a break from the chaos, or to simply say, because I said so. But when it's defined by Christ, we aren't disciplining because our kid has offended us, but because they've offended and sinned against God. Our discipline takes on a different form, a realignment towards God's will, an opportunity to teach our kids about a holy and just and gracious God. And it's a chance for us to pray for the Spirit to enact a change of heart in their lives. Secondly, we pursue relentlessly. If the way we treat our children is in response to the way God has treated us, then there ought to be a lot of grace involved. One of the hardest parts about parenting is the lack of control we have. Sure, we like to think we're in control, but when it comes down to it, our child's personality, the friends they choose, the life choices they make are beyond our control, and it could be very different from what we envision for them. But just as God's love is for us, so is ours for our children. If we believe in the truth of the gospel, then nobody is a lost cause. No matter the decisions they make, we extend grace the same way Christ has extended it to us. And just as Christ pursued us in the midst of our sin, we do the same. Not to pat them on the back and leave them there, but to shepherd them back into the fold. And we do what it takes to demonstrate the gospel to our children. Third, we father like the father. And so Paul calls us out specifically, um, and I think we all know why. Uh, I think for the most part, moms are kind of going to do the mom thing. Um, but in crunch time, often the, the, the dad is kind of left receding into the background, allowing the, their spouse to just kind of raise the kids and take care of all that. And that's not what we've been called to. TV and, and movies just kind of reinforce this idea with buffoon dads who watch sports and drink and are usually dumber than their kids. But what we have to realize is that as fathers, we share a name with the Heavenly Father. And what an awesome responsibility that is. As fathers, we have a profound impact on our kids and how they view God as they grow. God is active in our lives. He loves us and He expresses that. He's the great shepherd and He delights in us. We do the same for our children. He's our example for what manhood and fatherhood looks like. And dads, when you're watching your kids alone, you are not babysitting. You're, doing, you're being a dad. That's what you've been called to. You're, you're actively involved in their lives. All physically, emotionally, and most importantly, spiritually. 
Fourth and finally, we parent with a singular focus. It's interesting to note the context of the, pas- of the passage uh, that we're looking at here. For one, we've mentioned in previous weeks that the Apostle Paul is writing this from a prison cell. The reason he's in prison is for following Jesus, of living a life um, in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. The same thing he's instructing us parents to instill our kids with. Secondly, this is pretty much all he has to say on the matter of parenting, whether it's in Ephesians or the rest of his New Testament letters. So we've talked about the, the impact that parenting has, but we only get a few sentences. And I think it only helps to, to demonstrate the magnitude of what Paul is trying to say. That our only goal in raising kids is to help them to follow and worship Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Notably absent from Paul's exhortations to us are his thoughts on um, kids' safety or education or prosperity or their, their job prospects or anything else. Again, these are not thing, evil things to think about or to, to, to be concerned about. But when they take the place over discipling and instructing our kids in the Lord, when we prioritize our kids' physical well-being over the condition of their souls, then we have a problem. Many of us need to examine our hearts and our priorities in light of the gospel. What are our actions and our words saying about the legacy we hope to leave behind in our our kids' lives? So to wrap this all up, Family is a powerful force in each of our lives. Being a parent is a high calling with a great responsibility. It is a game changer for sure, but it's a great one. And I, I can't imagine not experiencing it. It's, it's been an incredible joy for me. But each of us has been deeply shaped by our experience with our families. And we carry that into adulthood and into how we raise our own kids. And that can be a tremendous blessing or it can be an overwhelming hurdle to try and overcome. Even childhoods that seem really great on the outside only instill in them a a love for the American dream of, of trying to seek fulfillment in jobs or in relationships or in status and coming up empty. What Jesus is saying, though, is follow me. In me, death becomes life. In me, emptiness becomes meaning. In me, failure becomes success. Only Jesus can say these things. Only Jesus descended from heaven to become man, to live the perfect life that we could never live, to die the death on the cross that we deserve because of our sinfulness. Only Jesus could rise from the grave and have the power to rewrite our story, to heal the scars of the past, and bring us back into the arms of our Heavenly Father. I think I've said more words in the past 30 minutes than I have in the past 30 days. So um, I'm good there. I'm going to pray. Oh, Actually, we're going to do something a little different. So to, to kind of close this up and, and wrap things up, I would like to, to do a little time of prayer. And what I want to do is give you guys a couple moments, a few minutes to reflect, to think on your past, to think how your past, how you were raised, how your parents have shaped who you are today. And so what I would ask is that everyone kind of bow their heads. 
and take the time to think and pray about your past, to examine how your family and your parents have shaped you. Pray for God to allow you to see the impact that they've made. Pray for strength to overcome the bad. Rejoice in the good and the blessings that they've passed on to you. So bow your head. Pray with me just for a few minutes. Just pray on your own. Just reflect and think about your past and how it's shaped who you are today. The next thing I want you to think and pray about is your parenting. Whether you're there already or not, whether you have kids or expecting kids or are light years away from kids, it's not too early to begin pointing yourself in a trajectory to be a parent that disciples and shepherd, shepherds their children for the Lord. And so take some time to pray for your kids, pray for your future kids, pray for other people's kids that the way that we parent would be shaped by the truths of the gospel, that we would be a reflection of God to our kids. God, you are a good and gracious Father. We thank you for the example you've set before us. We thank you for empowering us to be the kind of parents that can raise up disciples to, to, to see men and women grow up in this church, to grow up in our community, grow up in our families. Men and women who follow after you and our missionaries wherever they go. God, I pray for the, the children in our church. God, that we would be actively involved in their lives, that you would empower the parents, that they would see how good you are and would reflect that in the way that they love and care for their kids. God, I pray for dozens and hundreds of parents being able to baptize their children on this stage. God, we, we long to see generation after generation of men and women who follow after you. Help us understand the, the, the power that we have in raising kids and understand our past as well, knowing that you reign over us, that you reign over our past, that you can heal the scars of our past, God, and bring us forth, that you can turn weakness into strength. Jesus, we pray that um, you would just be made famous through the love that families have for one another, that it would reflect the beauty of the gospel in the way that they relate and love one another. God, you are so good to us. We thank you for the many blessings you've given us. Help us to just worship you now. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.